Well, I'm just always happy to have someone who's visiting Hawaii to talk about something that's beyond the islands and having context to the world, and particularly this time with the historical context. So I'm very excited to be talking to Daniel here. Daniel Brooke, let me just give a little short bio, and then Daniel will hop in and tell us all about his work. So Daniel's a journalist and author whose writing has appeared in Harper's, New York Times Magazine, and The Nation. His 2013 book, A History of Future Cities, was long listed for the Lionel Gelber Prize and selected as one of 10 favorite books of 2013 by the Washington Post. Brooks' research and writing have been supported by fellowships from institutions including the Library of Congress and Tulane University's New Orleans Center for the Gulf South. Born in Brooklyn, raised in Long Island, and educated at Yale, Brooke lives in New Orleans, so far, far from here on the islands. Um, and he's also a visiting scholar at the Center for Biographical Research at UH here. Very happy to have you, Daniel. Welcome to KTUH. Thank you for having me on your show, Crystal. I'm, I'm so grateful just to be in Hawaii for the first time. Yeah. Well, let me just ask you, what's the temperature like in New Orleans now? Um, it's, um, it's Some days it's warmer than here, and some days it's cooler than here. It's... Um, it's got that muggy warmth. It's though. very muggy. Yeah, it's it's more Manoa than Waikiki. <laughs> oh wow, yeah, that's it's, a... uh, it's it's quite humid. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it gets both hotter and colder than here, but it's generally it gets a lot less in, intense weather than most of the right, yeah, right. Most of Wait, so how long have you been living there? Were you there I've during there, the hurricane? I've been there a decade. Um, I've, so I've been there during the most recent hurricane, which was last year, which involved having no electricity for ten days. Wow. Um, and um, wasn't that during a funny time of the year too? Was it? It was, was hurricane it? season. I mean, it was uh, it was around Labor Day, which okay. is sort of the peak. Um, but it was, uh, I mean, the city sort of was spared the brunt of the storm, but the power system was really knocked out. Uh, they're about, I mean, New Orleans is on the mainland of the United States, but because of the swamps it's right. almost kind of an island yeah um has i think eight feeders from the u.s grid feeding the city and all eight were knocked out so they oh my the entire city and can i say this was the first time you experienced that type of a yeah, blackout for that extent yeah time? i mean um was able to get away um, oh to uh to a motel <laughs> and you know it's once you're off the coast um hurricanes are far less damaging so you okay so you were inland, able to find electricity yeah. and um but it was uh it was a pretty harrowing experience right yeah yeah no i mean that, that makes me think about the kind of the privilege we have and access to things and people who are left out of it who yeah. have to deal with no i know i remember um coming back in to check on the house and go through to take everything from the refrigerator and freezer which was clear was not going to uh, make it um note to self if you're ever storing chicken liver in your freezer, you should store it on the bottom shelf. Just, just a Wait, why is it different? Because it, 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 it drips all over oh. your freezer. You know? um, yeah, I learned that right. lesson the hard way. Chicken liver? Was it really um, chicken liver? Yeah, it was. But um, it really was. But um, <laughs> no, but it is It is true that I, I mean, felt very fortunate of the ability to leap down. Um, yeah. And it was really, uh, it was quite shocking and depressing to return to town and see uh, particularly a lot of you know elderly right. people sitting on their stoops with no electricity yeah. or air conditioning yeah. or anything um, right. just look sort of abandoned by yeah by the society general, right and you can't yeah. help but think about how life can turn on you and what to do with that i mean just so many things going on in the world right now mm -hmm. um 
So there's there's a lot of stuff I want to talk to you about. I wanted to talk to you about your book, your more recent book uh, from 2019, The Accident of Color, because I, I'm intrigued by this um, area of where you're talking about the mixed race activists pre-Jim Crow. I will get to that in a bit. I also want to say that you have a very, the other interesting book that I had read off in your bio was the history of future cities where you kind of selected several cities that you felt um, had a, a common thread, which I also want you to kind of go into a little bit, but just for our K2H listeners to hear like what your context to all this type of reading is. Uh, so you, you grew up or you were born in Brooklyn, but what is your relationship to history? What's your background that kind of compelled you to jump into historical research and writing and um, why these types of stories? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, I will, I'll take a stab at, at, at giving an answer, but it is, it's always tricky. I mean, I think part of, um, part of my interest in race, and I think actually part of um, the interest to turn to race at the end of his life was the, the individual I'm, whose biography I'm writing. Um, oh, what's his name? His again? name is Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld. Okay. Um, is uh, growing up in, in kind of the United States, uh, my, my Jewish and mixed Jewish and Scandinavian background is considered um, white. And in the European context, it's considered biracial. Um, Scandinavians and Jews are considered to be separate races. Right. Um, and you know, my character, my character, real person who lived, who I'm writing about, Magnus Hirschfeld, is on the run from the Nazis, sort of as they are um, trying to make these racial distinctions between oh. quote unquote Aryans and quote unquote Semites. Right. right. Um, and he's very suspicious and skeptical of this racial distinction that they're drawing. Um, so I've always, so I, I mean, that resonates with me. Uh, that's part of why I've been, um, I think, drawn to these subjects. And just the idea that um, race is socially constructed yeah. and therefore what's considered pure and mixed is, is essentially sort of random um, or per perspectival. Um, and you see this, I mean, I'm attuned to it. Um, but once you're sort of looking for it, you kind of see it everywhere. Yeah. Um, for example, the if you compare the New York Times obituary for Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh -huh. based in New York with the Financial Times obituary for Ruth Bader Ginsburg based in London, um, the New York Times presents her as a as a white woman who conquered barriers of of gender discrimination. Huh. The Financial Times said she was, and you can look up the direct quote, but I'm. It's more or less um, she overcame barriers of race, class, and and more more than that, gender. So it's interesting that they viewed her as conquering a racial system. I think it's they're incorrect. Um, I mean, I think in the American context, she was not considered a racial other. Right. Um, at the same time, in the, if she were born in London, she would have been. Yeah. Um, so you can kind of see where they where they kind of make that slippage. Um, but the fact that two people looking at the same lives, one from London, one from New York, come up with, you know, sort of very different understandings right. of how this person should be perceived yeah. in terms of their identity yeah. is telling. And it's something that um, comes up very much in the, uh, in the accident of color, looking at how the Jim Crow racial binary of white and colored was imposed kind of belatedly um, in the United States comes up in my work on Magnus Hirschfeld. Um, and I think it, it, in a more cultural sense, it comes up in the history of future cities where you're, 
a lot of the major characters, when I use the word characters, it's as a nonfiction writer. There are people who appear in the book who are real people, none of the facts are made up about them. Um, many of them are, are elites, um, either purely or mixed, you know, local elites in places like Shanghai and uh, British colonial Bombay. Um, and they have this kind of, if not biological, um, cultural kind of mixing of, mm. of a mix of, of the indigenous culture and the Western culture. Yeah. Um, so that, that's a thread that I think comes through my work. So this common thread of multicultural, it's much more beyond multiculturalism, right? It's, it's really kind of this blended history, these interconnections that we don't seem to see whether it's because it's erased in the history that we're taught or because we force ourselves to learn things in compartmental ways. I don't know. I mean, for me, I struggle with that. I think about my lack of knowledge in history and even whatever it is, I, the extent of it, I know um, what's been framing that to begin with. And you look at US history and why, you know, your comparison about um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg about the, the different versions is why, why is our country, let's just critique our country a little bit for a second. Like, um, why do you think this is so um, oversimplified? Like we generalize whiteness and in the Asian American for that too. I mean, it's very problematic and it's very troubling to have to feel like I need to explain myself or to distinguish different cultures for people who don't even see it, you know? Yeah, I mean, one of the, at its most worrisome, I mean, most, most of these distinctions are decided by a sort of mainstream society that does not have the good of the groups it's defining in mind when it creates them. And that's very, I mean, the clearest example of that is of course the, this, the creation of the colored the colored American under in the, in the at the after the in the aftermath of Reconstruction as a way purely as a the creation purely as a way to um, make this group of people second second class citizens. Um, at the same time, and I think see this a lot in Magnus Hirschfeld's work, particularly with uh, LGBT folks, mm. of which can you explain to our listeners what he was Yeah, so he's a he's a German Jewish psychotherapist and. Um, doctor of what he calls sexology. Um, he's interested in sexuality and all of its forms um, and, as a, and as a gay rights activist. Um, and Back he, in the 1920s? Yeah, um, yeah really, he's, I mean, he's born in 1868. His heyday is really the, from say um, the late 1890s until the uh, 1930s. He, he dies of natural causes in exile in France in 1935. Um, and he's in, he begins, he, First sees first sex, sexuality and gender as continuum, posing as binaries or, or kind of hermetically sealed categories. Right. Um, and then ultimately makes a similar argument about race as okay. a continuum. Um, but at the same time, you know, when he is, he's making the argument, for example, in the context of what we today call LGBT, mm. or say just queer folks, um, he's making the argument that gender and sexual orientation are a continuum in the interest of emancipating LGBT people. He's, he's, so in, in, in he's kind of, he wants to, he, he leads a gay rights organization. Their goal is to repeal this German law that's been on the books since he's a kid, that it makes it a criminal offense 
punishable by jail time okay. for a man to have sex with a man. Okay. Um, wow. So he's agitating to overturn this law. So he's kind of herding the community of men who have sex with men into a sort of activist force okay. that can try to overturn this law. At the same time, the idea that there's, you know, there are men who have sex with men and men who have sex with women, or even just men and women, and that those categories have no, have, have very clear boundaries, right. is one he's also undermining by doing research uh, on, on trans folks. Wow, so um, he's very progressive. Back yeah, then. so he's so he's sort of trying to look at the full the full kind of panorama of humanity in an emancipatory way, trying to sort of liberate everyone by showing us what we have in common, uh-huh. but at the same time, you know, doing the necessary activist work of like, okay, men who have sex with men are facing jail time right. in my country, right. and this group has to unite to overturn this law. So at that time, that was German law. And mm-hmm. how were the other neighboring European towns with the gay issue? Um, they, it was a, there was a lot of variation, actually. Okay. Um, Italy was much more tolerant. To a certain degree, France was, was more tolerant. Um, Britain um, had a certain amount of official toleration, but was, yeah. was very squeamish. Stuffy. Yeah, Stuffy. It was, no, it was true. It was very squeamish about any kind of um, public discussion of, course. of it, which he found very ironic. The same thing right. with the continental United States, that the places where people, quote unquote, had the most rights yeah. were, yes. were ironically the most conservative sort of, and re- yes. yeah, the most repressive socially. Right. Um, and he's very keen to that irony and, um, huh. and, and talks a lot about it, especially when he's traveling um, abroad. So, okay, wait, there are a lot of questions I have now, but let's, um, before we take a quick mm-hmm. break, um, yeah, so just to kind of f- finish up on, on your thoughts on Magnus Hirschfeld. So he's doing all this uh, research, activism, uh, trying to kind of, disma- well, is he, is he intending to dismantle this whole structure that, that's been built to kind of create these binaries, or does he just want to create his own space to allow people to recognize his work, you know, this kind yeah, of like- no, that's a good things. question. I mean, I, I, as I read him, he's he's sort of torn between being a scientist and being a political activist and kind of wants to be both. And sometimes it's something I wonder about, you know, is, does he necessarily, um, how wedded is he to all of his scientific theories? For example, he's very wedded to the, he's, he's a big proponent of what I'm calling with um, all due credit to Lady Gaga, the born this way hypothesis. I okay. mean, he's convinced that, um, Queerness is is an inborn thing, and he believes that ultimately, you know, long after he has passed on, you know, either through uh, endocrinology or genetics, you know, it will be it'll be sort of figured out why you know some certain people are born are born right. queer. Um, I think he I think he probably believes that, but I also think he knows that's a really good argument if you're trying to overturn a law that makes it illegal for men to have sex with men, because if it's if it's an inborn if it's a, if it's if inborn, if it's inborn, then how can you punish it? If it's inborn, then how can you say that you know this this community is recruiting yeah. young people and but you know, surely he had a lot of setback from all these kind of like traditionalists back. Oh, um, time, he faced so. plenty of setbacks, and he was ultimately chased out of his own country. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> yeah, so he he understands that, but I but in the in the pre-Nazi period when Germany is a is a relatively functional democracy. Yeah. Um, He's making these arguments and he's getting petitions to repeal this law and he's, he's you know, rounding up um, sympathetic politicians and, yeah. and cultural figures and right. ordinary citizens to 
to push in this direction. I think the, the born this way hypothesis um, is, a, is a convenient argument to be making scientifically to this end. I'm not, I'm not saying he doesn't believe it, but I, I'm, I'm always a little like, okay, well, yeah, he's, he's very politically savvy. That's all I'm saying. Great, back then, but do you find it ironic that today we still have this question of whether people are born a certain way? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's still something that's being, that's being studied. And honestly, like scientifically, like the born this way hypothesis is not bearing as well as he would have imagined. It right, there, right. There's no gauge that's or anything like that. Huh. Um, at the same time, the as a political strategy, I think the born this way hypothesis was was hugely beneficial in in getting gay marriage rights in in, in this country, yeah, um, in yeah, all sorts right, of ways. Right. Whether it's you know whether it's a sort of valid scientifically valid argument or not, it's politically a very savvy argument. But it's also politically very divided, isn't it? Because you're always going to have the the traditionalists and you're going to have the radicals, and it's always going to be a divide. Yeah, I mean, there are always going to be there are always going there will always be um, yes people on the far right who. Are convinced that um, yeah. you know gay gay gayness is a choice, and and or, the gay community recruits young people to convert them. Yes, there will always be some of those people. Yes, yes, yes. and and this applies again to race, which we're going to go into mm -hmm. after this. So let's 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 work our way over there sure. and and talk about these parallels of of gender and race and why that's always kind of like interestingly intertwined. Um, if you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Daniel Brook here, um, author of several books. We're talking about his up and coming new research on Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld, but I'm gonna wanna talk about his next, his other book, uh, The Accident of Color. So uh, don't go away. Welcome back. I'm talking to Daniel Brook, uh, author of the Accident of Color, which is one of his uh, several books. Now, all your work is really interesting. And we talked about this earlier, how they kind of all have this common thread of in between spaces. And let me just back up a little bit because so my, my area of study is performance studies and I'm obsessed with in between spaces. And so the Accident of Color speaks to me a lot because you're talking about multiracial um, spaces that are not recognized in the history books or even within like their kind of current society right mm -hmm. um so let's talk a little bit about this book it's it's set uh you focus on new orleans and uh is it charleston mm -hmm. and uh this is before jim crow so the kind of reparation time is that right or the reconstruction, reconstruction sorry time. i'm getting around a history person and um so this is what was fascinating for me to be reading through this is that um a lot of people don't think about this or know uh pre-civil rights. They just assume that all the oppression was always there and never thought of kind of the mixed race and where they where the was it mulattoes, where they sat in on the color line and the privilege and the access and then what was taken away from them historically. You want to talk about why the story came about first and then maybe let's jump into this uh, racial issue. Sure, yeah. I mean I um, became I moved to New Orleans a decade ago and kind of immediately became somewhat attuned to, to the complexities of race in yeah. New Orleans. Just, um, I mean, it's similar to Honolulu. I mean, you walk down the street, it's not always clear to you. It's not always, you know, even with a, my finally attuned New York race star, it's not always, <laughs> was, you know, could be kind of set off the wrong way. It wasn't always, it's not always clear what race, what box somebody yeah. sorted into. And this yeah. is a place that had actual Jim Crow laws with, you know, white restaurants and colored restaurants and white hotels and colored hotels till the, you know, till the 1960s. Right. Um, 
but because of the the earlier history of um, interracial uh, relationships, um, you know, which span the full gamut from you know rape to committed relationships, right? Um, the color line is very blurry. Yes. Um, and it, it took that, me that's a, the title of my documentary. <laughs> Blurring the color line. Yeah, absolutely. This is the in-between spaces, right? So at one point, um, a a British friend of mine was visiting and we ran into a a neighborhood acquaintance of mine who is a a Creole, would be called a New Orleans Orleans Creole, so mixed mixed background. Um, And we chatted with him for a while. And then I asked my British friend after we moved on, you know, what race do you think that man was? And his guess was, was Southeast Asian. Oh. which is like so totally like, off in terms of right. in terms of a good guess but <laughs> so totally on in terms of what the man actually looked like right okay. like if you were just yeah if you were a visitor from mars or great britain yeah and you saw this person you would say okay yeah it could be cambodian sure yeah well that but depends that's... because you're savvy in terms of like world traveling and, and seeing the distinguishing you know differences between different cultures in Asia, whereas maybe your average okay, I'm gonna this American culture again is gonna think you can't tell the difference between a Japanese and Korean, right? I mean, yeah. so it just depends on who's looking too. Yeah, it does depend, and it, it, it depends on who's. I totally agree. Um, but you know, I, I realized sort of the way Americans kind of do race. The, our race star is actually not as much about the actual physicality. The cues. It's not so much, you know, what color skin, what color eyes, what color hair, what texture hair. It's a lot of other things like speech patterns and dress uh-huh, and uh-huh. Um, presentation yes, and yes. all of those things that that we don't. We're kind of like the Olympic gold medalists of race of race uh, assignment in in the United States. I think it's not a prideful and thing. It's then. not a good thing. No, no, <laughs> it's not a good thing. Um, and it, it works on on many levels. So that kind of that experience with this British friend kind of shook up a little bit of. Kind of how I how I was looking at everything, and then as I began to read more of the history, um, and and learn also from you know Creole neighbors um, about the history of this community before Jim Crow, and even back you know in the pre Civil War days, there was a very uh, significant what about free people of color yeah, um, right. community, and they actually had you know had their rights taken away from them. Right. In Jim Crow, so ironically, sort of the the end of the emancipation, the end of slavery. Um, they actually had more rights during slavery when they right. were free people of color as opposed to enslaved people. Can you explain to people what that meant, though, historically? What does it mean to be a free person of color and who were so now yeah. somehow not part of that oppressive system? Yeah. So um, I mean, there, the only reason we should after we acknowledge the only reason uh, Sub-Saharan Africans ended up in the New World was in the belly of slave ship. That's why that's until more recently with immigration. I mean, that's why, so all of these people do trace their roots to somebody yeah. who was on the, who was to survive the middle passage. That said, um, in the Caribbean, in New Orleans, which was a Spanish colony and a French colony, in places sort of outside of the full on British colonial power structure, mm-hmm. um, there were, there were more ways to kind of wriggle out of enslavement. Yeah. Um, for example, there was a, a tradition of being able to work one day a week for your own wages and then emancipating yourself through per- literally buying, buying your right. freedom. Yeah. Um, there was less uh, strictness about interracial relationships. Right. 
So while there were, of course, it, it plenty, of, there were yet, plenty yeah. of interracial relationships in the British colonies, in the British slave colonies, of course, mm -hmm. but those, the children that resulted were never acknowledged or, right. uh, publicly um, and are only actually beginning to be acknowledged publicly now. I mean, you know, Thomas Jefferson's African-American descendants and probably right. President Monroe's African-American descendants and maybe George Washington, you know, all yeah, of these people sure. are only beginning. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, in the, in the French and Spanish colonies, Maybe this, this was not considered like the height of Christian matrimony, but it was understood that, you know, that yes, these were these were children and, and they were they would be emancipated and they would be taken care of. And right. they became kind of a middle a sort of middle class right. in the society. So in New Orleans, this flourishes under French and Spanish rule. And in um, Charleston, the community is actually called the Browns for the capital B, which is a category, racial category we don't we no longer have. Right. Although we have plenty of people who yes. skin is brown, right. as opposed right. to you know really white or really black. Yeah. Um, and they they come more out of the Caribbean system. So most Charleston is of course on the mainland of the United States, but it's it's almost initially almost an outpost of of, the, of Barbados and the, mm -hmm. the Caribbean islands. Both the enslaved people and the um, enslavers. Are, are, are many of them are, are come from the islands. And it, so it has a little bit of that more uh, sort of looser racial system. Right. Um, so, you know, this, as, as the United States, um, well, in the early American system, uh, class-based rights become race-based rights progressively. Mm -hmm. So initially, um, like, and, and gender-based rights, like New Jersey just says people who own property can vote. So like, Actually, women in white women in New Jersey, no, just women in New Jersey who own property can vote at the founding of the republic. Huh. And then it becomes, well, no, actually just men. And then it becomes, and, and then the property qualifications sort of go down. Yeah. And the racial qualifications go up. So we have something called universal white male suffrage, okay. which means that white men who don't own any property can vote, but then black men or mixed race people who own property cannot vote. Right. So these things are all kind of moving in tandem. And the, the full, idea of you know first class and second class citizenship based on race yeah. under Jim Crow doesn't arise until you know begins to rise in the 1870s and isn't firmly in place in Charleston and New Orleans until the early 20th century. Like the streetcar systems of both cities yeah, are not segregated the until the early 20th century, like 1906, 1912 right. type of and thing. And you kind of map that transition. Uh, where they were once in a place of so-called privilege, at least, you know, they were educated and mm -hmm. access, they could own property, and then things slowly get taken away by the way the rules kind of start kind of rolling in. Um, can we talk about the segregated carts? Because that's something that's visual, mm -hmm. uh, it's something that people can relate to with the bus segregation, mm -hmm. um, and, and how that works with people in between spaces. Yeah, I mean, it was, so it was always sort of a, a weird fit, because particularly in these in these cities that had large mixed race populations. Um, so there were, I mean, there, there, there are people, and some of them have not even, or, you know, they're, they're very old at this point, they're passing on as we speak, but there were people who, whose color was such that they would have to, in New Orleans, would have to stand in the middle on the streetcar because they would sort of be rejected by both sides. So they're like fair skin, but color. you could tell they are some Yeah, form they're somewhere of, in, they're uh, like, yeah, it's just somewhere sort of in between. Right, mixed and then there's, a, and then, yeah, right. I mean, so this is, this, of course, dovetails, I'm speaking to people on the Hawaiian Islands. Yes. Um, you, you will understand this in a way that's very hard for me to kind of get my continental readers to wrap their heads around it, that it's, 
it's like not a simple thing to be like, we have white people and colored people and the colored people sit in the back and the white people no, sit in the front. Actually figuring out who, yeah. you know, sits where right. is, 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 <laughs> is, is like complicated or yeah. kind of un, in some ways impossible. Right. Um, but we create but that did it any, but it happened anyway. Right. So that, that's really what creates that. I mean, that is the social construction of race is you create two categories and everyone has to be in one or yeah, the other, regardless the other. Of, of, of their actual, you know, background. Um, with your continual research and, you know, ongoing kind of, I mean, it must be obsessive to some point because of your research with, with about race and, and gender. How does that affect the way you think about how this country was constructed? Does it, does it, do you, do you, does it strike you sometimes? Like, Wow, what the heck? I mean, yeah, no, it, it does. It feels, I mean, this is what's, what's, um, yeah, this is what I mean. It's, it's difficult in this moment that they like, there are a lot of good things about this country and a lot of bad things about this country, but it's, unden it's undeniable that this country has a racial system that, in its kind of um, meticulous, nefarious insanity, is like off the charts. Mm. And that's, that's a big piece of what I want. Americans just kind of look at our own society with. So the, we like to think like, okay, we have this original sin of slavery mm -hmm. and therefore we have this ongoing race-based inequality. Right, right. I mean, on some level, That's on some level that is true, correct. but on another level, um, slavery, which was horrific everywhere, was all over the new world, mm. all over the new world. Jim Crow was only instituted in the, in the continental United States. Right. So that leap needs to be understood and unpacked. Yeah. And it's often just seen as a natural progression. If it was a natural progression from slavery to segregation, you would have had Jim Crow laws in, in every, Cuba. Right. You would have had Jim Crow right. laws in Colombia. You right. would have had Jim Crow laws in Brazil. Yeah. You, all of those. In, in fact, I read somewhere um, in this book, because when I was doing my research on uh, racism from the Chinese perspective, is there was this Shanghainese man in the 30s who happened to visit uh, the Jim Crow South, and he wrote, you know, a, a, a paper on it. And he was so horrified by the way this whole racial system worked. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting, but You're probably also in part horrified because it, in certain ways, echoed his experience in in probably in the French concession and international settlements of Shanghai being discriminated against too. Maybe I don't, I don't know because you touch on that, and that's what we can go into yeah. later. It's your other book, The History of Future Cities, where Shanghai is a huge part of it. But you know, thinking okay, so let's pull in the Asian aspect into the racism issue. Um, like Chinese cultures, and you have extensively kind of traveled around Asia, so it's safe to ask you how you feel about how racism and colorism works in places that didn't have that racial history. How, yeah, how do you think I, about I, right. That? I don't. I mean, I don't. My, the, the lesson I'm trying to teach is not you know everywhere else is hunky dory, and there's no Brazil has no racial issues or China has oh, no gosh. colorism issues or any of that. Um, it's it's. It's it's more just that we kind of have, as Americans have to kind of own the kind okay. of unique horror of our system, mm. and 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 as Americans are you know it's our obligation, it's not anyone else's obligation to kind of get us out of this. Um, so that is your intention but, with your. I mean, I think yeah, I, mean, I I think it's the intention of everyone, um, or not everyone, but I mean everyone <laughs> who I'm everyone everyone on the sort of broader side of. Of progress. Um, I mean, my, my the accent of color closes with a 
uh, James Baldwin quote, which I can say for memory, it's, it's up to you. As long as you think you're white, there's no hope for you. As long as you think you're white, I'm going to be forced to think that I'm black. Hmm. Meaning, it's incumbent in part and largely among white identified Americans more than anyone who benefits from the system to, to dismantle it. At the same time, it's also important for non-white Americans to look skeptically on the construction of non-white identity. I mean, so one of the things James Baldwin says is, you know, I, I'm the descendant of slaves and slave masters. I look in the mirror and I see that. What, uh, there's no reason to deny it. It's, it would be like denying my own reflection in the mirror. Yeah. Now that doesn't, like that, that's an important step too. I think in, in Hawaiian society, um, I think there is some like actually much healthier relationship with mixed with mixed ancestry. Well, let's talk with about being that. Being a descendant of a of a missionary and a and a, maybe a, a, honestly like a, mm. a indigenous teenager or what what have you, you know, mm. right? I think the whole mixed race thing in Hawaii is um, there are parallels and there are lots of contentious. Uh, issues with it. Let's take one more quick break and we'll come back and we'll continue this whole racial dialogue. I'm here with Daniel Burke. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about a lot of stuff. We're talking about the pre Jim Crow things. We're talking about like, the, we'll go back to Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld, which is what your research has brought you here for to begin with. Um, and boy, you know, and what's going on in Hawaii on, uh, on the racial dialogue. So lots to talk about, but don't go away. You know, talking about racism is not a light subject and it's often dismissed we you know we it, it, it's often it can it, the narrative kind of keeps going in a certain direction I think and it's very hard to unpack as it's so deep and troubling and deeply rooted and interconnected with so many different elements and it depends where we're talking about right so originally we were talking you know with your uh, Daniel your book on the New Orleans and and Charleston and the racial history there and now we're shifting a little bit about the because you're here with researching your new book um, the racial history of Hawaii is also very complicated and complex and everybody's mixed here, right? Um, and I can't speak for it because I am not a Kanapalali. I am an outsider and I always will be an outsider, even though I'm Asian and I feel like I fit in here and my kids look like they grew up here, I will always be an well, outsider. Are mixed. They not. are mixed, you're right, They're mixed. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But the mix between if you're not Hawaiian blood mix is a difference mix. Like um, if you don't have Hawaiian blood, you're something else. And I honestly feel um, troubled by that because I will never completely fit in because that is how um, strong the Hawaiian culture is here, that movement of keeping things within the culture. And I don't know if you feel that way, having been here for a short time, um, you said you're researching and you're interviewing people here and your understanding of the mixed race uh, with the co colonial history, if you will, uh, the yeah. plantation, the complex history. Well, I, I do, I mean, I do, I, I, I understand sort of why you and other um, more recent transplants to yeah. Hawaii feel somewhat excluded, but in the broader scheme of things, the Kanaka Maoli identity is incredibly wide embracing. I mean, I, just in my short time here, I've met, um, I've met or come across the work of, of numerous people who um, 
have little to no physical manifestation of Hawaiian ancestry who have who have some fractional Hawaiian ancestry and who strongly identify with it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that is not, um, you know, that's an unusual, that kind of, um, that kind of, ident- you know, identifying, you know, even if it's just one great, great grandmother or something like that mm-hmm. um, is unusual in globally. The only real analog, I mean, the closest analog is not even a good one is the one drop rule of African descent and kind of the United States. Right. But a lot of people who have, you know, 3%, you know, one great, 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 great grandmother of African right. descent are called passed for white and have been passing for white for, for centuries even. Right. Um, where, so the, the rejection of that passing for white or passing for Asian or whatever the person looks like who has a very small percentage of mm-hmm. Hawaiian blood is a, um, is a, is a powerful statement and the, um, a powerful statement for the individual, but also a powerful statement of how um, broad-based and kind of unexclusive the um, the indigenous community kind of you know, its willingness to embrace people who are kind of have who are, who are very small, you know, family connections, but do have real family connections to the land. Yeah. Uh, well, particularly the Chinese relationship with the Hawaiian history is also very interesting, right? You know, we talked about this the other day about how a lot of Hawaiian last names are actually kind of uh, transformed from a Chinese name that kind of somehow through immigration papers turned into something that sounds Hawaiian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing that um, the Emeritus Professor John Okamura mentioned to me when we met um, is that, you know, because the... Um, Plantation laborers were disproportionately male. Um, that the the immigrant laborers are disproportionately male. The marriage, the initial mixed marriages were typically a foreign man and a Hawaiian woman. And because of our patriarchal Western mm-hmm. system of name giving, mm-hmm. that obliterates the Hawaiian name because it's the last name of the, the child becomes man, right. Wong or Tevesh right, right. or, so or Okamura. Yeah. Um, so that you, you don't, the, 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 you know, the, the, the rate, the last name is often a, a sort of racial tell um, in figuring out race yeah. and continent of the United States, certainly. Um, and that's just kind of, that's, there's very little of that. So there are more yeah. people of, you know, there are more people of Hawaiian ancestry than have Hawaiian names, although now, as I've also learned, you know, naming, giving a first or middle name, a traditional Hawaiian yeah. first or middle name is a way to kind of reclaim exactly. that heritage that's been obliterated through the man's last name. And it's a lot of effort there because when there are Hawaiian students I know or people on campus and, you know, they prefer to be um, uh, announced as their full name, identified with their full Hawaiian name. Mm-hmm. But on another flip side is, I, I'm just thinking, you know, from my side, uh, so my dad had only daughters, right? So in Chinese uh ancestral tradition is they follow the men like you just said so when we have kids um the last name is lost so i'm a quok and because my husband's jewish i don't they don't have a chinese name that is you know i i'm not going to create a chinese name based on my husband's last name and turn that into their chinese name so i used my chinese name and gave them my chinese name but it was almost ridiculed by the Chinese culture. Like, what? Your husband let you give them your last name? You know, so there's really kind of an interesting gender aspect to the claiming of a name, too, mm-hmm. um, in addition to the racial thing, I just wanted to say. Yeah, no, that's a, yeah. That's... 
So their last name is Kwok rather than in, in Chinese. Oh, well, in Chinese. So they have okay. the Chinese name yeah, is yeah. Kwok, yeah, okay. and then yeah, English. Yeah. So it gets really complicated, yeah. and that's why I don't use my husband's last name because it's like, what are you, you know? But then the other, I mean, the wonderful thing about Hawaii is, is I'm sure your kids blend in totally fine. They on the streets the of Honolulu. Yeah, yeah, they blend in totally yeah. fine. But I do want to argue which that which is not their, which would not be their experience. In, almost anywhere else in the United States. Right. And that's kind of why we chose to live yeah. here. It is much more yeah. um, engage, uh, um, accepting, like you said earlier. But I also I want to bring in that whole racial aspect of the African-American communities, because we were talking about that from the previous book, is that there is still an underlying um, uh, anti-Black racism on this island. And um, according to my friends and community of African-Americans, they do feel that way. And that's something that people don't like to talk about here either. Mm -hmm. And that's different from the racial kind of um, issues within the, the Hawaiian mixed race yeah. as well. I mean, I, I think you see this more abroad, but it, it's probably a factor in why. I think, honestly, the, the dominance of, of continental United States pop culture globally, yeah. I think, has implicated a certain amount of American-style anti-Blackness globally. Agreed. Um, and that that is awful I, yeah. that, that, but that may be a factor so even I mean that's one of the things is there people certainly people who immigrate to the United States um whose only exposure who've never been to the country before whose only exposure to the country is through its pop it's culture rap, right? often or, or Hollywood movies or yeah. all kinds of all, all or the the media right you know all the news, news media you know mm -hmm. news media or the BBC or the yeah. know, New York Times, or, you know, have already have have anti-black racism kind of in, in, yes. within them, and that's um, you know that the, at the same time there are surely things local to Hawaii like, that can be worked on. Right. So on the yeah. bigger picture, there's like this huge problematic kind of white basis that um, everything's built on that are you know peeking through that you can't really dismantle so easily and at the same time Hawaii has this unique place where it has its own kind of you know vibe it just yeah, as you see it you know we can we don't know we're not really a part of the whole continental U.S. Um, but how do you feel yeah you know I mean I where I'm from is a in where I live in New Orleans is very black white yeah I and mean, there's there not to there are you know, Arab communities and, and Vietnamese communities. I mean, there are other, there are communities outside of that binary, but that's overwhelmingly oh. black and white. And right. I mean, the Honolulu is overwhelmingly not it's black and not white, right. I mean, everything else. Yes. Um, so that's just, yeah. That's, Have you heard of these, the, the history of how people treated like white people here when, in schools? Have you heard of this term called Kill Howley Day? Oh, I know the term Howley. I didn't know there was Kill Oh gosh, Howley. and that sounds horrible, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a historically when people would gang up on, yeah. on white kids yeah. to beat them up. So there's like this reverse claiming and it's just so complicated here because of the residuals and the kind of the colonial. Yeah. Well, you can also see, I mean, how race is constructed differently. The Portuguese community here is treated yeah. totally different than the Portuguese community in the kind of the United States who are, right. who are considered White yeah, people. yeah. Like like Devin Nunes. I mean, the California congressman. Okay. Portuguese American. He's a rapper Republican, Trump ally. Uh, oh. Yeah. So, but a Portuguese individual in Hawaii would be less likely to yes. come fit into that box. Right. So, yeah. so just kind of wrapping it up, I'm mean, just thinking like how we, we talked about how race and gender kind of kind of intertwine. Um, and and 
we kind of hint on this idea of colorism because of you're talking about like, you know, shades and the in-between spaces um, and how that kind of gets gets perceived and where that puts your position of things. And you also mentioned earlier about how it's not so much the color, but it's maybe the other elements of how you carry yourself, your vernacular and all these other things. So, I mean, how, how are we gonna, how do we really move forward now that we are cracking these deeply rooted uh, troubling past and how, how are we going to dismantle? Or do you think there's, there's a possibility to do this? Um, I mean, I, I, I'm, if I had the secret of dismantling white supremacy, I would be doing more than just writing books. Um, but I, I think the first, the first step, and that's the step that I'm working on, is just the acknowledgement of it. Yeah. Um, the ability that, you know, foreign, you know, to sort of see the country with foreign eyes. That's part of why I'm so interested in Magnus Hirschfeld's trip to the United States. Yeah. Um, and his trip to Hawaii. Because he why did he come to Hawaii? Um, honestly, just logistics. He had given a, a U.S. lecture tour, and he was giving a Japan lecture tour, and he, I mean, you had pretty had much to had stop. to stop. He didn't have to get off the boat, so this is the thing. He did. He did decide instead of so it was a it was a Japanese ship sailed out from San Francisco. It stopped here, I guess, presumably to refuel and all of that kind okay. of thing. Um, but from the research I did here and the. Papers. It's not, it was in port for for twelve hours. It was in port from seven a.m. to seven p.m. Okay. And most of the passengers continued on, and he four, four of them decided to spend time in Hawaii. They were uh, Magnus Hirschfeld, uh -huh. um, the heir to the Mitsubishi fortune in Japan. Okay. A Colombian diplomat. Uh huh. And a Southern California dentist. Wait, where is your source? Where <laughs> this did you is get in the, in the Star Bulletin or the the, the Honolulu. The Honolulu Star Advertiser. It was before the Star Advertiser, the papers of okay, okay. Age, but it's the 1930s local oh, wow. paper. They have something, they have a uh, shipping news section that tells uh -huh. you which ships are coming in and which notable people are there. So, uh, so this is a good little tidbit for your research as a writer is how, how do you get your sources and how do you challenge what is out there and how do you, you know. I mean, with this, with this book on Herschel, and a lot of my research, it's more it's more not finding things that are, that are not out there. It's just shining light on things that are, people aren't, haven't been interested in. I mean, Hirschfeld, when he was here, I mean, the reason he's in the paper is he was a global, kind of global celebrity. He was time. called the Einstein of sex. Okay. Um, and wow. people, you know, were, were, were flocked in his lectures. Um, the reason he disappears um, is in part because of the Nazis destroying his research. But more than that, um, because he was gay uh, in the 1950s, uh, in in the U.S., um, he's, his research is disregarded. Um, Kinsey, who I would argue takes some of his concepts and steals them, huh. um, says, you know, well, Magnus published on this, but since he was gay, he was a quote unquote special pleader for the gay community, so, so his how research much... cannot be can't be trusted. Okay, mm -hmm. but people are always finding ways to dismiss somebody's work, right? Do you, how much did his ethnic background, like his Jewish ancestry? I mean, I'd say his Jewish background was catastrophically disastrous for him in Germany. I don't, I don't, his, I don't think his Jewish background, it probably didn't help, but I don't think it hindered him much in the U.S. I mean, Sigmund Freud had the same ethnic background and Sigmund Freud was embraced. Right, um, true. For, you know, yes, in the United yes, States. Right. And, you know, of course, Sigmund Freud was not gay and his theory of gayness is like, you know, yeah. you had a traumatic childhood experience. Exactly. Your mom didn't raise you, right? And, and that's still yeah. kind of a narrative to a lot of people. 
Yeah, I mean, in, in, increasingly, um, yeah, increasingly we're coming. Oh, sorry. Oh, gosh. Okay. Okay, sorry for the little disruption. So is this is exciting talking about um, Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld in Hawaii. And this is again why uh, Daniel Brook, you are in you are here on the islands because you're doing research on, on his little stop here. Yeah, so he spends a week here. Um, it doesn't have any appointments or give any lectures, uh, stays at the Royal Hawaiian on Waikiki Beach. Does he bring a partner? Um, he doesn't. He his partner. <laughs> he actually ends up in a polyamorous relationship. Um, How his, do you find that out? Like, was this was this he was from not, um, He was kind of discreet, but not obsessive about keeping his private life private. So his, his um, he had a German um, Christian partner oh. <laughs> who he left in Berlin to take care of his um, sex research institute. Okay. Um, and then he, he will meet uh, a few weeks after his stop in Hawaii. Um, a Chinese medical student uh, originally from Hong Kong who's studying in the international settlement in Shanghai. Oh, I love it. And then they uh, become a couple and oh, travel the world. This is like movie material now. Movie material. This gets a little, yes. But his, um, so his, his writings on the, his time in, Honol in Honolulu focus um, on the, all of the interracial marriages, which of course is a huge taboo and illegal in most U.S. states at the time, but right. is um, permitted here and is about one in four marriages actually at that point already. Um, and I suspect he was also in curious about the Mahu community. Yeah. Um, yeah. He ends up writing uh, more about non-binary gender uh, in Indonesia and the Philippines and in India, but I, I would be shocked if he um, right. didn't at least hear about yeah. if not encounter um, that community here. Yeah. Um, and it ends up, you know, it starts as this um, kind of just rest and relaxation stop and it, i think becomes really important in his uh further work um his final book is called racism published oh. posthumously first book of that title wow um back in what this it's is published in 1938 so by oh. this time you can't publish anti-racist material in the german language because the german press has been completely nazified so it's published first in english translation huh. um in 1938 wow. It warns against what he calls the poison gas of racism. Whoa, God, that's horrifically prescient. Uh. Um, and his turn to race. That's so you know, ironic really, that he I has that, though. Poisons, yeah. This is pre this pre, is pre before anyone was gassed. My God. Yeah. Okay. Um, and his turn to race really, I think, gets started in Hawaii with the interracial relationships here. Mm -hmm. And then of course is augmented by this interracial relationship he gets into in Shanghai and right. for the rest of his trip. And he begins to encounter at the same time, the German government is telling him he's no longer, he's not actually German on racial grounds because he's Jewish. Oh. He's encountering anti-Asian racism traveling the world with this Asian partner. Right. So they try to go to the Philippines and because of Chinese exclusion, <laughs> The American authorities are in the Philippines oh, no. won't, let his, won't let his partner off the boat. So he has to have this huge argument. And go Wait, the Chinese this. exclusion affected all the way into the Philippines? The Chinese because Exclusion Act, yeah. Meant because that they were constant, American. Yeah, meant that if you got off the boat wow. in the US run Philippines and you were of Chinese descent, you, you, were, you, you were supposed to, the, the, yeah, the authorities were supposed to bar you from entering That's crazy. American territory. Yes. Oh my goodness. So you see, I mean, we can talk forever about these historical findings of the, and they're fascinating and I can understand and I look forward to this book, but how do you want us listeners to kind of have any specific thoughts on these complicated um, 
notions of, of racism and, and mixed race. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, race is always a work in progress, right? These racial categories are always shifting. And it's not so much that we one day sort of get them right. No. But it's that in acknowledging their social construction, we can take away some of their nefarious power. power. Yeah. Wow. This is Daniel Brook bringing you some perspective on racism, gender, uh, from a very, very multicultural perspective. And I appreciate that. And I'm sorry we don't have enough time to talk about your other book. You know, maybe next time you come to Hawaii, we'll tackle yeah, well, that I'm one. Hoping next one. I hope I'll come back when my manuscript biography comes out. When are you planning it to be completed? I call it circa 2024. Okay. Well, wishing you the best of luck. It sounds like a very enticing story. And I look forward to reading and learning more about Dr. Magnus Hershel. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you for having me.